What do we do after the fires, the floods, the pandemic? We live in a crisis-rich environment. And how do we learn and prepare for next time? My name is Will Small and this is Olivia Wolf. We believe stories are one of the most powerful learning and evolutionary tools we have. And this, this orange glow is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, this is not good. So we've listened to people's stories about disaster recovery, community resilience and mental well-being. From firefighters to clinical psychologists. There was a family that were actually um, protecting their house and they actually gave up their, their Christmas lunch. Small business owners to communities who have experienced loss and communities that have survived together. It's not often that people intentionally go out of their way to get to know their neighbours these days. These are conversations about what has happened, what may happen and how we can prepare for the future. It was an ordeal that we'll never forget. This is Emergency Ready Now. This podcast is presented by Central Coast Council and lead by Story and jointly funded by the Commonwealth and the New South Wales State Government under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. The views expressed are the opinions of the individuals interviewed. Please be aware these topics may be sensitive, particularly if you have personally been affected by bushfires. If you need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. Resilience can be a bit of a dirty word. It can conjure up feelings of insecurity or feel like a word that devalidates our struggles. It might seem like the word lends itself to a certain stoicism or a pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of approach. But that's why our conversation with Anne Ledbetter was so refreshing. Anne does not see resilience as something you magically receive or are given, but as something you cultivate through connection and care. Anne found herself entrenched in the world of disaster action and recovery as her community in King Lake experienced some of the worst bushfires the nation had ever seen in 2009. Anne's amazing efforts and wisdom led her to being awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia, and she's since gone on to work with communities recovering from drought, fires, floods, cyclones and earthquakes in places like Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia, Queensland and Christchurch. Now Anne works as an independent national consultant specialising in disaster recovery and community resilience. We spoke to Anne about the long road to recovery and the unexpected key ingredients of resilience. Her insights have been quite literally forged in the fire of adversity. And as we continue to face a global pandemic and become increasingly aware that natural disasters are just going to become a part of our lives, this conversation is one I think everyone could benefit from hearing. Uh, When the fires happened, um, the scale of the impact for our municipality, we had um, 43% of our land area directly affected by fire. So it was all hands to the wheel, as is often the case in disasters. And um, the the emergency management plans would suggest that the help would be um, dispatched from head office, but there was a big fire burning between where we were in King Lake and where our our council headquarters is situated. So we really did have to rely on our own, um, 
I guess, instincts and and capability to to start a recovery process. Uh, and lots of people came to help, which was fantastic. But coordinating that and helping people who had not been to our community before understand how things worked and who was who, that was sort of a big part of it in the early stages. But also making sure that the community had the information that they needed to make good decisions. So we would meet every day um, and everyone could turn up and, and all of the agencies would talk about what they were doing. And the model that evolved um, uh, from our, our uh, efforts was highlighted in the Royal Commission final report as a case study. Uh, so I'm really happy that we, uh, that we were able to shine a light on the fact that you can work very openly and honestly and collaboratively in recovery and have good outcomes. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, um, it was a wild time. And a lot of the time we didn't know what we should do next. Um, and so a lot of it was learning on the job. A lot of it was about talking to the community and, and asking them what they felt would work, you know. So we were very collaborative in our in the way that we we did things, and um, and some great solutions came out of that way of working. Um, and the people who came to work with us, the Australian Defence Force and the Department of Human Services and Centrelink and you know, countless um, organisations that came to support our recovery, um, joined in on that process, and they contributed. Uh, by working in a similar way. And so we were able to advocate for each other. We were able to understand what each agency was trying to achieve. And that meant that we had a very um, uh, holistic and sort of connected process, which I think was really important in terms of, um, of, a, of a successful recovery. Um, it's hard because disasters are by their nature disastrous. You know, they are terrible, terrible things to experience and things go wrong. Um, and things don't work the way you anticipate. Um, sometimes things happen which actually make the original impact of the disaster worse. So in all of that, you've got to try and navigate a path um, to a more um, settled and hopeful future, uh, and you've got to bring people along with you as you go because um, uh, it's important that recovery works for everyone, that you don't leave leave people behind. So um, we spent a long time without electricity, so um, we had no power for about 13 days, um, which means we had no uh, reliable um, internet or communications, um, broadly speaking. We, we had one, we were able to get one telephone line re-established into the council office. Um, we had one photocopier running on a generator, so running very slowly, you know. And so, um, but day by day, things get a bit easier and things get re-established. Re and um, and we we learnt um, uh, how to make it work, um, and that was really um, that was really how how it happened. Um, and I think the other thing I'd say about recovery is it takes an extraordinarily long time. Um, so there's a sense often that the disaster only lasts for as long as the media is interested in it, you know, and that once it's off the front page of the newspaper, somehow it's all fixed and it's all okay. But that's absolutely not the experience. Um, and, and I think it would be fair to say that um, our community was really in active recovery for about five years uh, beyond the disaster. Um, we had a lot of fatalities where I live, so that 
adds a, a, a level of complexity that is perhaps additional to uh, other experiences where that doesn't happen. But um, it was a very long journey um, and it was um, many times, you know, three steps forward and two steps back. That's so true as well because we don't really talk about and, and you're right, in the media, it's we don't really discuss, discuss um, sorry, recovery and and for it to be like years and years into the future, still, still, you know, getting back on your feet, that's very intense. Yeah, it is. And, and disasters are life-changing events um, and not to sort of overstate that. If you go through a significant disaster, you are different as a consequence of having experienced that. And it doesn't mean that your life is necessarily worse um, or that you become a different person in a bad way, but uh, it does change fundamentally the way you think about things. And so um, recovery really is about learning to take that experience with you. It's not about getting over it. It's not about necessarily building a new house or replacing your car or, you know, getting your job back, all of those things matter and they all contribute to a state of being recovered. But in and of themselves, they're not the whole answer. The whole answer is about finding a way to make sense of the experience you've had um, and to be at peace with it as best as you can um, and to learn how to carry it with you into the rest of your life uh, in a way that doesn't define you but in a way that actually um, is sustainable and makes sense to you, if I can put it that way. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So you've um, <clears throat> you've been a part of and exposed to a number of disaster events now and obviously worked in this space for some time. Um, you've worked with communities that are recovering from all kinds of disasters, you know, fires, floods, cyclones, earthquakes. Um, I'm just wondering, are there common things you've learned to kind of expect almost regardless of where, what the disaster is and where it happens or is it just completely unpredictable each time or, or what's the balance between those two? Well, that's such a great question because there absolutely is things that we can anticipate uh, and there are needs that are common to people regardless of what's happened to them. So we can do uh, a great job of planning for recovery. Uh, it's not something we tend to do, which is a shame because uh, I think we tell ourselves we have to wait and see what it is and where it happens and who it happens to. But in actual fact, we can do uh, really valuable pre-planning for what recovery might mean for any particular community um, and we can engage with those things that we know people will need in the immediate aftermath and then sort of in the first um, few months and then even into the longer term. So um, I, I I feel like I'm sometimes waging a one-person campaign to say <laughs> let's plan for recovery the way we replan the way we plan for response. Mm. Um, you know, we, we don't wait to see what the disaster is before we get ready to respond to it. And we have excellent, well-developed mechanisms and processes and, and structures and resources that we bring to bear in responding to disasters. So what I'd really love to see is that same sort of strategic thinking applied to recovery and having well-developed recovery plans uh, for communities that can be adjusted in relation to the disaster when and if it happens. 
But even if it never happens, the act of making those plans deliver their own value in terms of resilience because we need to understand the community really well to plan its recovery. We need to understand the relationships and the networks and the values and the way that we operate. So in building that understanding, that actually builds resilience as well. So it's a win-win, really. Mm. Um, but things like um, the things we provide in relief, uh, so that very early stage of disaster, uh, while often the response is still happening, we're, we're looking at things like um, temporary shelter, um, first aid, food, water, communication. Um, those things are common uh, almost inevitably in a disaster, whether it is a cyclone or a flood or a storm or, or a fire or whatever you like to think about. Um, and then um, being able to reconnect uh, the community to the way that it worked before the disaster is a fundamental approach to facilitating recovery and we can plan for that as well. So, yeah, we really have um, a great opportunity to think about recovery and in, in advance um, to understand what we can know about the community that we're working with and then to encourage people even at the individual level to think about if we had a disaster, what would recovery look like for me? Mm. Um, what would I need? What you know? What resources would I need to tap into? What things could I do for myself? What might I need help with? You know. So in doing that, we're really raising raising the the bar for everyone, and um, and I think it would uh, it stands communities in good stead when they've had this uh, opportunity to to plan in advance. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about the potential that that represents. Mm. So it's about understanding a community and then implementing you know things that may or may not work for them but then in the understanding being able to say like this 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 will hopefully work for this community yeah yeah, yeah. and so it's not necessarily about taking um a recovery plan out of the top drawer and saying okay this is what we do yeah. um it's really about saying this is what um experience tells us has been helpful mm. um and so then it's about testing that experience in, in the community that you're now working in. Um, and it's also about the respect um, and the um, it's about honouring the way the community worked before the disaster um, because mm. whatever we might think of that, it made sense to that community, you know. So, so actually respectfully engaging with the way the community functioned before the disaster happened and looking to try and reconnect uh, and and um, re-establish those ways of working um, because sometimes there's a temptation to come into a community and say, well, there's so much broken here and we just need to start doing stuff and, you know, there's so much work to do. Let's get everything fixed up as quickly as we possibly can. Um, and in that, that haste and that um, enthusiasm to make things better, we can potentially make things worse mm. because we haven't stopped to engage with what matters to the people who who live in that community. So, um, so being able to listen first uh, and to learn from the community about what's important, what the priorities are, what the priorities have always been, you know, and and what um, sorts of things uh, matter, uh, then we can hopefully come up with a uh, with a recovery plan that's um, a really excellent fit. 
for that community. If we've got the basics down first and then we overlay that, that understanding of the community and how it works, then we end up with a recovery that will make sense to the people uh, it's seeking to support. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that brings to my mind, which is from a different context, but I've talked um, to a counsellor that I see, you know, on a few occasions about he kind of says um, going slow is fast when it comes to yeah. working through complex um, things. And it obviously yeah. is the same sort of principle here where when we think about a good recovery, it's not about, um, you know, rushing it and getting the job done. It's about actually a, a holistic recovery which has that longer-term view. But could you just share, you know, what what in your mind is a good recovery? What does that look like? What does it actually look like to see a, a community do a recovery process kind of in the best possible way? Yeah, it's a great it's a great observation because um, the thing about watching people recover is that their pain and distress is difficult to witness. You know, it's difficult to to see that that awful distress and that the disruption of people's lives. And so, for people who've not been directly affected, the real driver is to just get things fixed up. Just get in there and get stuff fixed. You know, because we can't bear to see people struggling. You know, and and of course that's a that's a very natural human response um, to to a, a, a such a, a vastly difficult experience the problem is if you're in it if you're living it you actually need um sometimes a bit of time to make sense of what's happened and to weigh up your options and to think about what's going to work best for you um you'll be grappling with things like should i rebuild my house should we move away should we move away for a while and move back can i even stand the thought of facing another fire season after what's happened um, to us this time? Or can we do another cyclone season in this community because each year it gets a bit harder and a bit more stressful? So there's all sorts of things that people need to work through, um, not to mention um, insurance claims and negotiations with their banks and, you know, receiving donated goods and, and funds. And there's, there's a myriad of, of complex interactions that happen in recovery. and. If people um, have the feeling that they're being rushed through that complexity, it really adds to the trauma and the distress. So a good recovery happens at a pace that suits the people who are experiencing it. Um, it it's fast for some people who are ready to go fast and it's slower for people who need a bit more time. Um, and a good recovery is one that focuses on the things that matter to the people who've been affected not focusing on the things that matter to government or agencies or the media or, you know, donors or any of those other people. Mm. Um, a good recovery focuses on the people who've been impacted by the disaster. They are first and foremost. Their needs are central to everything that happens. Um, and so when you see um, agencies and organisations working in that way, then that's when the magic happens. You know, great innovation can occur when the people who are affected are at the centre of all of the decision-making. Um, they are the ones who are driving what we do, how we do it, when we do it, how long we do it for. You know, that's they're informing uh, the sort of parameters of recovery, if you like. And it happens. You know, it does happen. Um, uh, I think um, I can think of a number of communities where uh, they 
have been able to establish um, a communication process and to advocate effectively for what they need, uh, and they've been supported to do that. And when we see that occur, um, uh, you know, very often the recovery that evolves from that is more sustained and um, more effective and complete than when we have people coming in and taking over and doing doing to people rather than doing with them. Mm. You mentioned before, Anne, about um, making sure people aren't left behind in the recovery yeah. process. Um, are there steps that communities can take to make sure that happens and that there aren't, you know, um, certain types of individuals or communities that are left behind? Yes, because, you know, the thing about disasters is we don't all go into them from a level playing field. You know, we don't have a disaster occur and we're all at the top of our game ready for the challenge, you know, people's lives are being lived at the point that the disaster happens. And some people will go into a disaster with, um, for example, maybe a disability or um, a chronic health condition. Maybe um, they are financially um, insecure. Maybe they their housing is, um, is, is insecure. Perhaps they uh, have a drug and alcohol um, issue. So we're not all of us um, the same in terms of how the disaster impacts us. And the thing that I've learned is that things that were hard before a disaster are rarely made easier by having a disaster. You know, usually those problems are compounded. So some people will need more support to get to the same point in recovery as other people, uh, irrespective of how they've been affected because they were already... Um, they already had some challenges in their life before the disaster occurred. Uh, some people can be really profoundly affected by the disaster, but their recovery can be quite straightforward. Perhaps they're fully insured. Um, they were, you know, financially, um, uh, you know, well-resourced before the event happened. They've got great family support. They've got great resilience within themselves and within their community. Uh, and so they can navigate recovery in a reasonably straightforward way. For other people um, whose lives may have been more challenging in a range of different ways, um, their recovery can be more difficult and more protracted. So we have, to, um, we have to be fair and equitable in the way that we support people in recovery, but what we're supporting is their opportunity to recover. So we need to maybe give some people more help because for them, recovery is going to be more difficult. Um, and that doesn't mean being unfair. It means actually um, helping people to understand that the difference, that there will be different uh, levels of help needed depending on what life was like before and, and after the disaster. Mm, yeah, it's really helpful. The difference between sort of equity and equality and the fact that we don't all kind of start in the same position. So we need some specialized and unique support. Um, you've yeah. already kind of touched on this, but I'd love to hear you elaborate a little bit more on what kind of things can be in place in a community that don't just prepare it for that response, like you've said, but that prepare it for the recovery phase. You know, is that just a document somewhere with some plans on it or what are the other kind of elements that may be a bit more tangible um, to everyday community members that can be in place to prepare for a good recovery? 
Well, we talk a lot about resilience. This is a very common idea about, you know, communities will recover from disasters if they are resilient. Um, and I totally support that idea. I'm a bit challenged, though, by sometimes how we define resilience um, as this sort of destination that we can arrive at. You know, we pull up to the resilience station, you know, tick, we're resilient, you know, and and it's not that. Um, the, the experience of resilience is actually um, part of the journey of life and mm. the extent to which we can be resilient has a lot of contributing factors. Um, but what we do know is that resilience is underpinned by connection. So the more connected you are, the more resilient it's possible to be. It's very hard to be resilient after a disaster if you're completely alone mm. and that you have no connections. Um, and so a community, a community that is well-connected is likely to be able to mobilise its resilience more effectively than a community that is really um, disparate and divided. Um, that has lots of um, tensions and lots of things that they disagree about. So something as simple as, as you know, programs that support the community to get together around shared interests is actually contributing to building resilience. Um, uh, communities that prepare together for disasters very often will um, will demonstrate higher levels of resilience after a disaster because they've done that thinking. They've, they've actually imagined what this might be like. It doesn't come to them as a complete shock. Whereas by contrast, communities that have a disaster who say things like, we never thought this would happen to us, you know, often their recovery is going to be um, complicated by the fact that it was beyond their imagining, you know. So, so thinking in advance about how communities operate, what supports that sense of belonging, and that sense of being connected, um, imagining uh, what a recovery might mean, what some of the challenges would be, what some of the opportunities would be in advance, thinking about uh, how the community operates and what the impacts of disaster would mean for that. So um, what then would need to be our priorities? For example, um, a recovery plan um, for a community that um, is primarily agriculturally based might look different to a recovery plan for a community that relies on tourism as its main economic driver. You know, you might need to think about what the what the risk of the community is, what sort of disasters might it experience, but then what will the impacts of those disasters mean in terms of economic recovery, social recovery, and then the recovery of the built and natural environment. So we can think those things through really effectively um, in the cool light of day before we're trying to think about them after a disaster has occurred. Uh, and so we can map out um, those sorts of uh, understandings into a, into a plan or into a, um, an approach that will be automatically tailored to the community because it's been informed by what that community looks like and how it works times other than disaster. Mm. So I think we can do a lot and, and, and we can certainly, um, we can't, um, we can't buy resilience for communities. We can't pay for it and, and, and tie it up with a ribbon and, and give it to communities. Um, it's an intrinsically um, uh, sort of, it's an intrinsic quality. Resilience comes from within. But we can invest in the things that support resilience to flourish. So, you know, good preparation, um, good service access, good connection, 
uh, you know, a sense of, of belonging, a sense of community, we can support those things to be um, really strong. And then by doing that, we will um, have done the best work we can in ensuring uh, high levels of resilience post-disaster. And these are really um, good concepts that we've seen come up um, a few times in our conversations now. Community, belonging, preparedness are all really key to that. Um, and there are many people still in the recovery phase from last season's bushfires. And I'm wondering, um, I guess maybe these experiences might be overshadowed by new crises like COVID and, and the events of 2020. Uh, what would you say, Anne, to those people who might feel like their experiences are overshadowed or what, what might you say to the broader community at this time? Um, this, is, this is an extraordinary challenge. Um, disaster recovery is incredibly hard uh, ordinarily, you know, and then you put the impacts of a global, a global pandemic on top of um, what has already been just an extraordinary and unprecedented set of circumstances for communities affected by fires over the 2019-20 fire season. Um, I think the important thing to, to know is that um, uh, one of the, the things that I've just been talking about, that sense of connection and bringing people together, you know, that's really been challenged by the practical response that we've had to uh, see happen as a result of, of COVID-19. So in a sense, um, all of the things we would normally recommend have really been um, uh, less helpful um, in, in this environment. So, but fundamentally, I think that sense of connection still is important and the sense of shared experience. So that doesn't necessarily have to happen in a face-to-face -face way, although it's certainly a powerful thing when it does. But, you know, writing about experiences, having um, uh, conversations, you know, via Zoom or um, making sure that uh, people are checking in with each other, uh, even if it is virtually, I think those things are important because uh, that sense of connection is what gets us through. And we've got to find ways to support that if the the more obvious face-to-face -face options aren't, aren't available. Um, I'm going to be really interested to see what um, the impacts of COVID mean for disaster recovery. I suspect they're going to be profound. Um, but in the meantime, what we do need to remember is that that even though it sort of uh, it, it quickly got bundled off the front page of the newspapers and, and off the leading story of the, the nightly news, um, people are still trying to navigate this incredibly challenging experience of disaster uh, in their own communities. And, and now they're actually coming up too, or for some, they've just passed the first anniversary of, of the event that happened to them. Um, we are now in another fire season uh, and all, of the, uh, all the, the tension and challenge and, and potential distress that that represents. So this is still a very live and very evolving and an incredibly challenging experience that people are going through. So I think um, to, to people who are in that experience, I'd say be gentle to yourself. You know, it, it's, it's okay that this is still really difficult because that's exactly what it is. Um, 
And to the people who who are sort of outside of those areas, I'd say um, you need to understand that um, the challenge of COVID has given everyone a tiny glimpse into what it feels like to have your life completely turned upside down, and that is often the, the effect of a disaster. So we are all of us hopefully a little bit more engaged with and um, and have a deeper level of understanding of what people who are impacted by a natural disaster actually go through. So um, yeah, it's going to be um, it's going to be interesting to see just what we can take from this um, this experience or this set of experiences in terms of our understanding of what of of you know what helps people to recover. Mm. Yeah, that leads me into into my final question, Anne, which is um, you know obviously this year has been in many ways just um, so difficult, so complex, um, just one thing after another. But that does present an opportunity um, in that disruption to kind of evaluate, you know, what what we're doing and how we think about how we structure communities and how we respond to all kinds of things. Uh, what are some things that you would love to see, you know, Australia broadly and communities like where we're on the central coast here, um, really try and, and and learn and grapple with as we look towards the future? It's such a great. Um, it's a, such a great question, and I think um, there will be really significant opportunities for us to expand our understanding. Um, and there are, in fact, in every disaster that that comes as a matter of course, but only if we're courageous enough to really look for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the thing about disasters, as I mentioned, is that things don't go to go according to plan. You know, they're, they're each of them challenging in their own way. And one of the um, the sort of perennial responses to those challenges is, is to have, you know, an inquiry or a commission or, you know, some sort of examination of, of the facts, which is important to do. But one of the sort of um, unfortunate outcomes of, of some of those processes is that we we start to focus on who to blame rather than what to fix. So um, I think the thing that I would really love to see happen um, is uh, a process that acknowledges the unpredictability and, um, and the incredible challenge of managing disaster um, and that recognises that the wisdom of hindsight is just that, you know, people make decisions at the time with the best information they have available. Um, when we focus on on who to blame, we really do lose the opportunity about how we might um, improve our practice. Because when blame is the is the agenda, then honest evaluation of what did and didn't work becomes very difficult. Um, blame and continuous improvement don't really coexist. You can have one. Um, and that might make you feel better for a short time, or you can have the other, which actually might make a really big difference in the long term. But if you want continuous improvement, um, we have to understand that things will go wrong and we need to understand why that mattered and what we should do differently next time. Now, it's not to say that I haven't been intensely, intensely mad about various things over my um, my recovery experience, both from my own personal experience and, and, you know, in more recent times as well, where I've thought to myself, I can't understand why that thing is happening. I cannot understand why this can't be the case, you know. So 
really frustrated and and angry um, and disappointed with the way things have occurred in recovery. Um, and um, what I did learn um, from our own recovery after two thousand and nine is that um, that everybody means well. So everything that happens in recovery is incredibly well motivated. The people who work in recovery really want to make the best difference that they can. And the things that that get put into place and the programs and the you know infrastructure and all of the things that evolve out of recovery have been um, motivated with the best of intentions. The thing is that meaning well is a great thing, but it's not always the answer. It's not always enough just to mean well. You actually have to do well. And and so the, the, the job of communities is often helping people understand what that looks like. Um, you take those good intentions and with your own local knowledge and experience, you shape them into good actions and good outcomes. Uh, and so that's that um, ability to, to lead, for communities to lead their own recovery um, comes um, to the fore when we're thinking about incredibly well-motivated and well-intentioned people needing to know what's the right thing to do. So I think we need to get much better at, um, at uh, helping communities to articulate that um, better still understanding what it looks like before we need to, you know, through through planning for recovery. Um, and and then not being in such a rush to find out whose fault things were, but actually to understand, well, what went wrong and why did that matter? And therefore, what would we do differently next time? That would be um that would be what I'd love to see because um disasters are hard enough. It's hard enough recovering from the disaster. You don't want to be recovering from the recovery. That's uh, that's not good for anyone. So so getting recovery um, better understood, better planned, and then um, connecting and committing to a, a a culture of continuous improvement. Those are the things I think that we could take from this terrible summer and and the complexities of COVID on top of that. Mm. Oh, thank you, Anne. You have shared so much uh, wisdom with us and, and fantastic insights. And I'm sure a lot of people will um, will be encouraged yet to reflect on what this looks like in their context. And um, yeah, I, there's lots of things you said that will stay with me and I'll continue to think about for sure. So thanks so much for your time and um, yeah, being part of this conversation. That's a pleasure. My best wishes to everybody and thank you for the opportunity. I learned so much from our conversation with Anne, and I love how she framed the narrative of resilience. In the words of Anne herself, we can't just pull up to a resilient station and, you know, tick, we're resilient. Instead, Anne encourages us to think of resilience not as a destination, but as a part of life that we grow and develop. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about your own plans and has encouraged you to consider what you might do in the case of an emergency. What stood out to you from this conversation? One of the key themes of Emergency Ready Now is community connectedness. So, if this episode was useful for you, we encourage you to share it with someone and have a conversation about it. You can also help more people find this by giving it a rating and review on Apple Podcast or sharing it through your social media. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can listen to next week's episode as soon as it's released. Until then, let's take care of each other 
and continue to become emergency ready now.